Good morning. I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 18, and uh, we're going to continue our series in Proverbs. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we want to uh, just thank you for your presence, and Lord, we invite and welcome the Holy Spirit into this place. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present everywhere around the world, and yet, Lord, you sometimes manifest your presence in wonderful, intimate ways. And we just welcome your presence here this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, this morning we are looking at Proverbs 18.22 through chapter 19, verse 7. I'm going to talk about four ways to protect your hard-earned money. Uh, The thing I love about Proverbs is that Proverbs is designed to be very practical. And uh, this section of Proverbs is especially designed to be practical. So there's a verse in, in Proverbs that says, In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout like wings and fly away like an eagle. It's a great picture. And it pictures what a lot of people have experienced with their financial resources. And to illustrate this, I want to take you to Cuba and show you some Cuban banknotes that were pre-revolution banknotes. So uh, when we were leaving Ciego Diavolo one time, uh, one of our great friends, Donato, said, hey, I have some souvenir Cuban money that a good friend of mine had before the revolution. He knew that Castro was coming into power, and so what he did was he took out all of his money into cash, into banknotes, thinking that he would would have cash on hand if the economy went south. Well, Castro did take over, the economy did go south, and that that money was worthless. It was worthless. And so for the next 40 years, he was trying to sell Cuban money as a souvenir at about five to 10 cents on the dollar. And when we got it, 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 it had been year, decades since the revolution, and he was still trying to sell the money. I still have some of that money in my office. Now, there, there's a dramatic illustration of this, this idea here. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears. It will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Or imagine a young couple in a Starbucks, and they're both on Facebook, and they get a pop-up that says, hey... Um, it's the Smiths, we're in Mexico City, and everything has been stolen from us, and we need help now. Can you wire us some money? The Smiths are a little bit naive about these things, and they give some information over the email, and suddenly realize they've been scammed out of $10,000. Now, I have, I have, I'm amazed at what is happening now with, um, with scam emails and how creative people are getting and how sophisticated people are getting at extracting money from people's accounts. Money makes itself wings and flies away. But probably the, the place where you can relate to this the most is in debt. How many of you have been in a situation where you thought, okay, we haven't spent that much on the credit card this month, and so uh, we're, we're going to be okay. But then your spouse says the same thing. We haven't spent that much on the credit card this month, so we're probably going to be okay. 
And then you're both thinking we're, we're going to be okay. And then the credit card comes and all those, those little things and mid-sized things have added up to a whopping amount. And you think, I can't pay this. Money sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle. What would, happen, what would happen if you built certain character qualities with respect to wealth that enabled you to maximize and keep the money that you earn? That's what, that's what Solomon wants to talk about in these Proverbs today. How do you maximize your financial resources in such a way that you keep more of what you have and you don't make mistakes? You keep and you steward the finances that you have really well. Well, Solomon gives us three ways in these, in these verses. And the first way, ironically, has to do with our family. If you want to maintain your financial resources, pay attention to the health of your marriage and your family. Pay attention to it. Now, here's, here's the verse. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, I haven't read the whole passage yet, so you don't know the context, but the 11 verses we examine here today all address the topic of wealth and poverty. In fact, as we go back and forth in this passage, we've got rich, poor, rich, poor, poverty, wealth, poverty, wealth. There's kind of an interchange back and forth between these two topics here. Solomon is talking about gaining and losing wealth and when he starts off this whole discussion, he starts off with the idea of marriage. And he's talking about he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now, this is not talking about romance. It's not talking about romance. It's not even talking about a romantic loving marriage. What he's talking about is the financial stability that comes from a healthy marriage. And you're thinking, what? That's weird. We live in the modern world where love and romance are all the rage. That is a late invention in human history in terms of marriage. Because for most of human history, people did not marry for love and romance. They married for a variety of other reasons. Marriage was not primarily a romantic institution. People married for reasons like economic survival combining two family fortunes. One family was destitute, the other family was rich. They could combine family fortunes and now you've got two families being lifted up. Romance was generally not a part of it. And it wasn't a part of it in Solomon's era as well. If it happened, great, but most of the time it did not happen. You had to learn first to honor your spouse and then to befriend your spouse and then to love your spouse, even when you didn't want to, and maybe the romance would come, maybe it didn't. But that wasn't the point of it. The point was you needed marriage for economic survival in the ancient world. In fact, marriage was the right into adulthood, and it was regarded as a privilege. And Solomon, when he says this here, notice he doesn't say he, it's a privilege to find a good wife or a pretty wife or a fun-loving wife, or an athletic wife, or a wife with a large income. doesn't say that. A privilege to find a wife, referring to marriage as an economic institution before it was anything else, because that was the ancient world. 
To give you an idea of, of, about this, here's a section of Proverbs 31 where he idealizes marriage in part as an economic institution. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Now, we've been just been with our grandkids for the past two and a half, almost three weeks. And I'm thinking, if I want to get things done, I got I to gotta get up really early. But I was too tired to get up early. And I'm thinking, I, I did this four times when they were little. I don't know why I'm so tired, you know, when, like, I still have little ones around. He's idealizing uh, the economic aspects of marriage and talking about what couples did in the ancient world to make it economically. So, he's saying, he who finds a wife finds favor. And I will tell you that even though he uses the term wife, in reality, you could insert the word husband here as well because you needed both, obviously, to create the family in the ancient world. All right, so that's the ancient world. What about our world? Maybe it doesn't apply in our world. Maybe you don't need marriage economically in our world. Um, um, <clears throat> here's an ancient Israeli settlement, and here you see all sorts of people working together. Maybe in our world today, you don't need marriage and family to be well off economically. In fact, some would say you don't. And yet, and yet, if you look at it, we are in the most amazing situation in the year 2017. Very few people talk about this, but the declining rates of poverty worldwide are shocking. And I, I keep hearing people talk in, in places about this, but it's not gotten, not gotten a, lot of, a lot of press. Why is it? that the poverty rates have declined as much as they have. Here's another example of global poverty and economic freedom, where economic freedom uh, rises, global poverty tends, to, tends to, 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 to fall. So you have this time in, in, you, in really world history where poverty is, is falling, economic opportunities are rising. Maybe you just don't need marriage anymore to survive economically. I will tell you that that's not true. Um, this past week, I contacted Mike McManus of Marriage Savers in Washington, D.C., who's been researching marriage over the past, past 20 years. And Mike directed me to a 2014 study showing how a strong marriage and strong family pr uh, promotes economic success worldwide, worldwide. Um, here's a picture of the cover of the studies on the screens. You can Google the study. It's, it is, it's, 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 it's an exceptionally well-written well, uh, study. But the big takeaway of the study was that if you're married in America, on average, you have a higher income, you have higher net worth than if you're not married. And this cuts across every dif demographic, black, white, Hispanic, etc. Marriage tends to produce stronger patterns of work, this says, stronger patterns of savings, stronger patterns of financial discipline, and greater tendencies toward delayed gratification. The impact of this study was marriage is an incredibly important financial powerhouse for couples who are living in America. So I, I 
talked to Mike McManus and I said, I said, like, give me, give me like specific monetary amounts. And he said this. He said, married couples earn $42,000 more on average than unmarried couples over a specified period of time. And I forget what that, that, what that specified period of time is. And he said, married men tend to earn $15,000 more, more per year on average than unmarried men. So I look at that, that study and I, and I think, okay, so is, is that the only study on that? McManus pointed me to a series of others that point out the same thing. Marriage is an economic powerhouse in America and in the West. On the other hand, he pointed out the catastrophic economic consequences of a divorce. Let, let me just give you a quick catalog of what it is. Obviously, there are legal bills. I googled Huffington Post, and I asked the question, I'm googling Huffington Post, what's the average cost of a divorce in America? And ironically, it's about the same that it costs to get married. Cost about, what, $25,000, $35,000 to get married these days? Wedding costs and all that. Costs about $20,000 to $35,000 to get divorced these days. But the study went on to talk about the hidden costs of splitting the households, the moving costs, one spouse has to move, downsizing overall lifestyle, assuming additional debt is often part of it. Tax consequences. Many couples don't recognize there's tax consequences. Credit is affected, and so on and so on. And look, I know, I know life is tough, and I know that sometimes there are, divorces are, are you, can't, you can't prevent them. Um, they're going to happen. But if you want to protect your money, one of the things you do proactively is you say, you know what? I want to really work on my marriage. I, I, I want my marriage to be an economic powerhouse for us as a couple, for our children, for our children's children. It's the idea that I'm building a legacy generationally, and I want my marriage to be a strong financial foundation for that legacy that in part is economic, in part is spiritual, in part is emotional, in part is educational. This financial blessing isn't just limited to, to, just, to just you, it's, it's generational. This is what Bradley Wilcox says. For starters, growing up with both parents increases your odds of becoming highly educated, which in turn leads to higher odds of being married as an adult. Both the added education and marriage result in higher income levels. And the study would go on to talk about increased opportunities generationally for children and for grandchildren. What Wilcox is saying is that marriage creates a, a, an incubator for generational success. All that goes back to that verse, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. That was about economics, not romance. If you want to steward your, your finances well, you start by stewarding your marriage exceptionally well. Now, let's go on to a second area that Solomon deals with, and the second area is friends. We go from family, now we go to friends. You want to preserve your financial resources, you pick good friends who are wise, with respect to, to wealth. 
you know, many friends will, will treat money very casually as something to be earned and then dribbled away or gambled away or wasted away on, on worthless activities. There are other friends who are not like this. There are friends who will support your vision to steward money well, who will support your vision to invest money wisely in your children. Um, and so, you know, you got a choice about friends to pick. The idea is pick friends who will support your vision to steward financial resources well. And it really begins with the culture of those friendships. Uh, here's verse 23 and 24. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. That is a statement about the culture of a relationship. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now let's focus on the second line of verse 23. Sometimes a rich person's wealth makes him feel entitled. Like I deserve certain things because I have financial resources. And if I'm not treated well, I have a right to answer you roughly. Why do, you, why do people get away with this? Why do people think they can get away with this? Well, um, here's Paul Piff who did a, a, a TED Talk, rather provocative title, Does Money Make You Mean? And uh, he had written an article in the, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and in the article he explores the relationship between wealth and narcissism. And narcissism is, you know, the mindset of excessive self-preoccupation. It's all about me, I love my life, what I get to do, you better love me too, narcissism. And here's, here's, what he, here's what he says. He argues that greater wealth and higher levels of social class can lead people to uh, have a greater sense of entitlement. That sense of entitlement can then lead toward narcissism. In other words, the prosperity makes you feel entitled, and if you don't get the power and respect you think you deserve, you get angry. Now, obviously, this is not automatic. It's associational. It's not like, okay, I, I, I'm blessed with much, therefore automatically I'm a jerk. Not that way. It's associational. It's associated with people feeling um, in, entitled. And when you feel entitled and people block you, you feel you have a right to lay into them and to get angry. And let's think about how this applies in the year 2017 because you know back then poverty was and wealth and poverty was based upon one thing and one thing only do you have property you have property you're wealthy you don't have property you're poor it's pretty simple but these days it's way more complicated because wealth is measured in multiple ways you remember how jesus said beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Jesus is pointing out a very, very important thing, and that is there are many, many ways that you can be wealthy in this world. So let's think about them. You can be financially blessed, obviously. You can be physically blessed, endowed with good looks. You can be athletically blessed, endowed with speed when you run. You can be intellectually blessed, 
able to pick up concepts quickly, able to pick up mathematical concepts quickly. I know some people who are like amazing in their ability to compute mathematical equations in their head. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? I can't do that. Some people are gifted uh, with personal charm and charisma, and they can do anything they want to do because they're so, charis they're so charismatic. So you have one of those aspects of wealth, and you are wealthy in this modern world. And if you have that wealth, it's very easy for you to look up, down upon others who don't have that, and you feel entitled to their respect. You feel entitled to their honor. And if you don't get it, you can get angry. So where does that leave the person who does not have those capacities? Well, they're forced to assume the lower place. Uh, this proverb says sometimes they use entreaties, like, would you please... That means you have to be ultra-polite. Sometimes you have to kowtow. That means you, there's kind of a culture of shame and a culture of being demeaned. So what this goes back to is, is the culture of relationships. What culture are you bringing into relationships? And what culture are you accepting from the relationships which you are in? If you want to preserve your financial resources, you pick friends where there is a wise culture with respect to money. This is complicated by the second half of verse 24 when it says, a man of many companions comes to ruin. Now, that doesn't seem like that should be right because Proverbs 15:22 says, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. But the whole point of verse 24 is bad friends versus good friends. If you've got a wide collection of bad friends, this is saying it's possible to come to ruin, and what he's talking about is financial ruin. Um, and you've probably seen cultures like this where your friend buys something that's really nice and you've got to buy something that's really nice. A friend buys an experience that's awesome, and you've got to buy that same experience that's awesome and maybe a little bit better. A friend tells you he or she made a lot of money at the gambling table, and you can think, you think, I, I bet I could do the same. It's a culture that leads you into a bad place financially. So you know what the solution is? Uh, the solution is, verse 24, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I wonder if you have friends like that who, who give you this, this culture that does not lead you toward financial erosion and financial ruin, but leads you to a culture of preserving and protecting and enhancing the financial resources that you have. Now, when I was growing up, I was the oldest of four. And I did not have a brother. And when I was a junior in high school, we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And within the first week, I met a guy named Greg Jones. Greg Jones became, without a doubt, my closest friend, the closest friend that I'd, I'd ever had up until uh, that point. Uh, we went to Southern Methodist University together, specifically you know, to be together in college. We roomed together our freshman year. We roomed together our sophomore year. We were in the same fraternity our junior and senior year. Greg and I were, were incredibly close friends. And now I had a category for a friend 
who stuck closer to a brother. I had a category in my mind. So here's what the Lord did with that. My junior year, I met a guy who was a pre-med guy, a guy named Stacy Peterson. He and I developed a close relationship as brothers in Christ. And now I'm, I'm learning more about what it means to have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Stacy Peterson encouraged me spiritually in the fraternity house like I had never been encouraged before spiritually. I'm getting, I'm getting a sense about what it means to have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Same thing happened senior year. I had the privilege of leading a fraternity brother to Christ, and he was a very wise man. And he really encouraged me in my relationship with Cindy. Now I've got a portfolio of friends who stick closer than a brother, and I'm learning what it's like to have that kind of relationship. And so I look at high school and college, and if I made any good decisions in high school and college, and by God's grace I did, it was because I had friends who stuck by me and were closer than a brother. They created a culture in my life where I was motivated, not for the adrenaline rush of the moment, but I was motivated to pursue a vision that would last beyond my college years into my adult life. That friend who stuck closer than a brother created a culture of, of long-term value. God did the same thing for me um, when I was first married with a friend named Dave Fortune. And if I made good decisions about loving my wife well in those early years, it was because my friend, Dave Fortune, who was 17 years older than I was, often was not afraid to speak directly to me and say, you need to spend more time with your wife. I needed that. We moved to Bartlesville, and, um, and friends like Jeff Grisham, Morris Salgi, many of our, our, our elders provided that same very strong sense of sticking closer than a brother. I look back on my life, and if I've made any good decisions, and by God's grace, I have, it's because I've had friends in my life who were not afraid to speak truth in love. And that's especially important with finances, because when you have a challenge in your life, and you can make some decisions that harm you financially or help you financially, you got to have friends who will help you make those right decisions. Here's my encouragement to you. Um, number one, do you have friends that lead you astray with regard to money? If you do, identify them by name and ask yourself the question, is this person a person who is helping me get to the place where I want to go? Second, who are the friends in my life who are closer than a brother or a sister? And I would encourage you to name them and pray over that list, thanking God for the role that they played in your life. I periodically do that with the men that I just mentioned. I just thank God for those, those friends who stuck closer than, than, than a brother. Are you functioning as a sort of friend to somebody else? You ought to be. You ought to be saying, I want to be that friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister to somebody else so that they make good decisions 
even with their finances? Are you willing to encourage, to exhort with respect to money? I had a, somebody come to me recently and said, I'm thinking I want, I, want to, I want to divorce my spouse. I knew this person pretty well. I said, you can't afford it. And let me tell you what's going to happen if you do. And I, I ticked off some of the things that would happen financially. And this person, person said, I need to rethink this. I need to rethink this. Sometimes you have to speak harsh truths in love to people who are going down a bad path. That leads us to the third area, that is ethics. If you want to hang on to your hard-earned money, you grow morally and you grow ethically with regard to money. Here's Proverbs 19, 1 through 3. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who's crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is good, and whoever makes haste with his feet, and by the way, that's the idea of making haste with your feet to make money, like a get-rich-quick scheme, misses the way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord, even though he did some things to bring himself to ruin. So these three verses are bookended by the word fool in verse 1 and folly in verse 3. And so these are meant to be taken together as verses that deal with issues of ethics and finances. Now, uh, what are ethics? Ethics consist of the various moral principles that govern our behavior. So ethics and morality, kind of the same, but a little bit different. Morality is what God has revealed in His Word as being right and wrong. It's what God reveals in our mind, in our conscience. That's morality. Ethics deals with the application of those right things and wrong things in everyday life. And what this is saying is that we have to tune up our ethics with respect to money. And I'll give you three observations about these verses. Observation number one is that the way he uses these terms is that our ethical life is like a journey. This is something that we grow in over time. You may, you may think I'm ethical from the, from the very beginning, and hopefully most people are, but most people aren't. You grow in your ability to discern ethical right and wrong as you grow in Christ. Walking implies a journey. Now, there's a, a crooked path mentioned in verse 2. Uh, making haste with your feet on this path leads to bad things. There's a way of ruin in verse 3. It's all about a journey. He's, he's talking about a journey here. And you can, on this journey, you can go forward ethically or you can go backward ethically. But the idea is that my ethical life with respect to my finances is a journey. And I need to respect the fact that it's a journey and walk wisely on that journey. Here's another, uh, another observation about these three verses. When you take these three verses together, we realize the choices on this journey can sometimes be radical. They can be radical. Solomon says it's better to be poor, essentially, I'm paraphrasing this, and ethical than rich and unethical. So I ask you the question, do you agree with that? Now, hopefully, you would say, of course I agree with that. But in actual fact, 
a lot of people, when it gets right down to the privacy of their own thoughts and minds, they might doubt that. They might doubt that. Because a little shortcut here, no big deal, leads to a little shortcut here, no big deal, leads to a bigger shortcut down the road. And so you might say, I totally agree. Better to be poor and ethical than to be rich and unethical. But boy, it's so easy to make compromises. I was in the midst of a financial transaction two weeks ago. And in the middle of the transaction, there was a box that I had to click. And the box said, I have read the copyright statement. Click, unclick, I better do that. So I read the copyright statement, and it was a long copyright statement with lots of legalese in it. And I realized this product that I was about to buy, um, I couldn't buy ethically and use it the way I was going to use it. I was going to buy this for somebody else, but use it concurrently with them to coach them through it. I read the statement, and I could not do that. And so I gulped, and I wrote the authors, and I said, this is how I want to use the material. I read your copyright statement. What would you advise? And they gave me a very creative solution. The authors did. The authors who put the legalese together gave me the creative solution that allowed me to buy it for somebody else and not use it for me. Now, how easy would it have been for me to go click, next? Very easy, super easy. Um, but, you know, um, I had a gut check about that in the moment. And, um, I'm just saying it's really easy to um, make choices that are not radical, that are easy. And the challenge is to make choices that are radical. Third observation is this. Unethical behavior begins in the mind. Uh, look what Solomon says in verse 3, line 2. We can have a heart that rages against God when our finances are in jeopardy. Remember what the heart is in the Bible. The heart is that center place in us that makes decisions. The heart is associated with the will. It's the executive center. You can imagine that our finances get into jeopardy because we've done some things that are wrong, and now our will rages against God as if it's His fault. When in fact, when in fact, we were the fool because it was all about us and we relegated God to the second place. And so this unethical behavior, not only does it begin in the mind, but it begins to poison the choices and the decisions that we make. If we have desire for, for financial wealth at any cost, it's called desire without knowledge. Now let me, let me just zero in on one of those ethical problems. Let's zero in in the bookend verses about folly. Folly, remember, in Proverbs is, I'm first, God is a distant second, or maybe he's third, or he's last. That's the fool. So check out this Harvard Business Review 
uh, article. The vast majority of managers mean to run ethical organizations, yet corporate corruption is widespread. Part of the problem is that some leaders are out-and-out -out crooks, yeah, but that's rare. Much more often, employees bend or break ethics rules because those in charge are blind to unethical behavior or may even unknowingly encourage it. All goes back to this idea that if you want to preserve your money, you look at your ethical life like a journey and you make good choices along that journey. And that leads us to the fourth area here, expectations. Realize that God will hold you accountable for how you manage your finances. I'm going to read all these verses, but we're going to zero in on one of them. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, but he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but he does not have them. He is mixing all this irony about the culture of friendships, but tucked in these verses is an interesting statement about the false witness not going unpunished. Verse 5 pictures a courtroom. And the court, uh, the judge is seated on his bench. He's about, the witness is about to testify. And the witness begins to testify and he's lying. And you know he's lying. And in this case, what happens to the false witness? The judge pounds his gavel down and the guy is handcuffed. He's taken out and he's going to jail. And the idea is that the person who lies about resources, about, remember this whole thing is context, is about financial resources. The person who's lying about financial resources is going to be accountable toward God. And um, it's interesting how um, in verse 19, verse 9, you have almost the same verse, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who breathes out lies will perish. That connects it to the person's eternal destiny. Now, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that how you use money is a measure of how Jesus will evaluate you at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Proverbs doesn't teach about the judgment seat of Christ. That's a New Testament concept. But how we manage our money here is going to be evaluated by the risen Christ there. And so it's important that we, when we think about our, our financial resources, we, we don't think, it's all mine. I get to do with it what I want. Don't you tell me what to do. We've got to realize, I'm the steward of these resources. And God has a right to tell me how to use these resources. And God has a right to dictate the ethics by which I manage these resources. And He's going to evaluate that at the end of my, of my life. So, how do you hang on to your hard-earned wealth in eternity? Well, here's what Jesus said. He says, treasure up treasures in heaven. The way you use your financial resources here is going to determine the amount of reward you encounter there in heaven.
So, you know, you hear, hear the old story about you, know, you never seen a U-Haul, a, a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul, you know, taking your stuff off into eternity. Never seen that. That's what the pharaohs of Egypt tried to do. They would build these gigantic pyramids and they would stuff the pyramids with all this stuff that they would use in the afterlife. Well, what Jesus said in the Gospels is that if you use your resources well, meeting your needs, investing in kingdom opportunities, you will see that financial pile of cash again in eternity. Imagine a pallet. You have stuff on that pallet. Jesus, what is that stuff in the pallet? Well, you know how you treasured up treasures in heaven? Yeah. There it is right there. Wow. And that, that then compounds for all eternity. So how do you hold on to your hard-earned resources? Well, number one, you pay close attention to the health of your marriage. Number two, you pick good friends who encourage you and challenge you to financial faithfulness. Third, you build a strong ethical life with regard to money. And fourth, remember that God will evaluate your stewardship one day in the future. My, my prayer for, for us and for me is that we would see financial resources as a gift to be managed well in light of eternity. Father God, we want to thank you um, for these words about financial resources. And Father, I think probably all of us recognize that we have areas where we can grow, maybe even grow substantially. Father, I, I ask that you would give us the courage and the grit to manage money well in light of these, of these noble and worthy eternal goals. Lord, now as we, uh, as we transition toward communion and we enjoy, enjoy the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray your blessing upon us. And Lord, I, I ask God that you would search our hearts, Lord. And if there are things in our life that we need to, to change, sins we need to confess, maybe even sins we need to confess with respect to money, Lord God, I pray that we could just come to the communion table clean uh, and uh, enjoy your presence as we take the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in memory of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're free to come to the communion table as you feel led. And I would encourage you as you come to uh, confess sin if you need to, to engage in thanksgiving, and to enjoy what God may say to you as you take the bread and the cup.